today we get to verse 10, which is the appeal to fight as a prepared soldier. To fight. Because it's a war. There's a war. But this is not a physical war that Paul is talking about. It's not a physical war in which we're going to learn about over the weeks here to come. This is an invisible war. This is a spiritual war. This is a battle for the mind of the Christian. This is a battle for the emotions of the Christian. Therefore, God has granted us and blessed us with the whole armor of God. So, we want to spend today and next week being educated on our enemy. So we're going to take today, we're going to take next week, we're going to learn about the enemy, we're going to learn about Satan, we're going to learn about demons, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and how they operate. You know, the Super Bowl is next week. So you have two teams this week that will spend a majority of their time not only practicing, but watching game film. Learning the strategy of their opponent. We're not called to be ignorant. We are called to be very mindful of how the enemy operates. And we're called to be even more mindful of how God operates through us. And that's really the context of our study here today. But if you remember, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, Paul has presented to us the great truths of being a Christian. The grace that's been granted to us as we have been brought into the family of God. Redeemed. Bought back at a great price. What it means to be a believer. What it means to belong to God. Having the Spirit of God. Having been adopted into the family of God. What it means to stand in Him. Knowing your position in Christ. Knowing your identity in Christ. That was the first three chapters of Ephesians that Paul continues to expound the truth of the righteousness of Christ that's been imparted to you as a believer. And when God looks at you, He sees the perfected righteousness of His Son. Immovable. No one can snatch you out of His hand. If you're a true believer, you can't lose everlasting life. People who think think that they can lose it, in reality, if they walk away, they probably never had it, if you remember. First John says they went out from us because they were not really of us, for if they had been with us or of us, they would have remained with us. But they manifest the reality that they weren't of us because they went out from us. Yea, they walked for a while, they looked like the real deal. They never really were. Your identity. Ephesians 1.3 says that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been predestined. You've been adopted into the family of God. He's given you His love. He's granted you His forgiveness. He's given you enlightenment and knowledge and power. And He's sealed you with His Holy Spirit. You are an everlasting child of God if you are in Christ. And you've been enabled. Enabled to live a life that rightly reflects or rightly manifests that truth. That you are a child of God. We think differently. We act differently, we react differently, we speak differently than the world. 
He's brought us out of the world and into His redeemed family of believers. We're a city set on a hill. We're light in the world. We're salt, preservative in this world that is lost and separated from Christ. We were at one time enemies of God. We were at enmity with Him. We were at hostility with Him. We were at war with Him. But in Christ, we have peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. We are made one. Filled with resurrection power. Coming to a place of true repentance, true brokenness. Filled with godly sorrow. Emptied out of self. And filled with the Spirit of God. We grow in meekness as we grow in Christ. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. He promises to fill us. We grow in mercy. We become more pure in heart. And we become peacemakers. Not peacekeepers. Peacemakers. Divine everlasting truth. Divine everlasting peace. Which may cause immediate conflict. Here on this earth. So we have all of this. All of these promises. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we learn what it is to be a spirit-filled Christian. Paul begins with the command in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of that calling with which you were called. In other words, I beseech you to live in a manner that reflects your position or matches your position in Christ. Remember, if you're in Christ, you're perfectly righteous in Him. Therefore, Paul says, because you're this, live like it. You can live like it because you've been enabled to live like it. You've been empowered to live like it. And we spent some time in chapters 4 and in chapters 5, and we see the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife, Christian parents and Christian children, Christian boss to a Christian employee, employee to a boss. And we know that in Christ, we can have harmonious relationships in the home and outside of the home. In Christ, we can have harmony. We are enabled to have harmony because if you go back to chapter 5, verse 18, we have a command. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We're called to be filled with the Spirit. So a Christian who lives a life filled with the Spirit, living a life that rightly reflects Jesus Christ here in this dark world that hates Christ, Guarantee there'll be conflict. Guarantee that the enemy of our souls, Satan and the demons, will not stand still. The fact is that the spirit-filled Christian and the enemy, Satan, demons, they will collide. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Many Christians today believe that Victory comes through quietness. Just quietly, quote-unquote, waiting on God, never engaging in the battle. Never engaging. So the point is that they never do anything. They sit on the bench. And they say, well, I'm just letting go and letting God. Let's just let go and let God. Where Scripture gives us a very different view of the believer's role. Scripture depicts the Christian life as being in a race, being in a fight, or being in a war. Now, we depend on God's power. We depend on His energy. We depend on His strength. 
But we are by no means to be passive at all. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to give ourselves to good works. We're commanded to resist the devil. We're commanded to bring our bodies into subjection to the obedience of Christ. We're called to walk in wisdom. We're called to press forward to the goal. We're called to press forward to the prize. We're called to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to perfect holiness in the fear of God. All of this, the call to action. A call to action. Can't remain passive. Paul says in verse 10, chapter 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now there's the balance. God supplies the resources. Okay? He supplies the power. He supplies the might. And He supplies the armor. Our part is to put it on. To put on all of it. This ringing passage sounds the call to arms. Sounding the call to take up arms. This is Paul's final appeal here is to fight. Not as a lone soldier, because lone soldiers get picked off. They get plucked. They're out of there. But as a body, believers, an army, soldiers united together. The fight, the opposition. The fight against it. The key word in the passage here, Stand. To stand. It's a military term. For it means to hold one's position. So he's not exhorting the soldiers to make some quick moving attack, but he says in verse eleven, stand. Verse thirteen, stand. Verse fourteen, stand. This is to hold the crown of a hill, so to speak. And if you're holding the crown of a hill, the enemy has to pursue you. And if you hold the crown of the hill, the enemy is going to weary himself in pursuit. When I was a kid, we had a, I lived across the street from a, uh, from a church, a lot. And they added onto the church, so they were digging out the foundation and all that, and they had these big piles of dirt. And it was the bomb. Because being an eight-year-old, or whatever I was, I played on those mounds of dirt, because they left them there for years. I played on those mounds of dirt until I was 13, 14 years old. Until I got close to driving. And the older I got, the cooler I thought I was. And I would still rush off and play with the neighborhood kids. And we play King of the Hill. Remember that game? King of the Hill. So we get in a circle, we do the little eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing, or however we drove straws or whatever we did, to determine who would be the first king. And the first king would stand on the crown of the hill, and everyone else would surround the hill, and they would attempt to overtake the king by knocking him down. And the thing that you did not want to do was to go after the guys coming up the hill. Because if you take one step this way, all they've got to do is pull you down and it's over. You had to make a stand, and you had to watch. You had to hold off. You had to stand and resist and push away. Stand and resist and push away. Or you'd be overtaken. The same is true with Satan. When Satan attacks, you don't go towards him. You have nothing in and of yourselves, nor do I, nor does any human being, to stand against the devil in your own strength. You will be devoured, eaten up, 
spit out. You don't go towards them. You don't have to run after them. You don't have to curse them. You don't have to, you know, in prayer time to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, I've been in prayer meetings where people start talking to Satan. Satan, we bind you in the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we bind you hand and foot and we toss you out the window. That's senseless. He is loose and he will remain loose until he is chained for the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, only to be let loose for a short period of time and then to be cast in the lake of fire, prepared for him and those who follow him. So the command is to stand. Stand. It's a strong position that Paul has in mind here. And we get an idea as we go back to chapter 2, verse 5, where he said, And we, even we, who were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, the one in whom we have union with is the one also who is head over all things. Chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things, God the Father, under his feet, God the Son, and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the one in whom we have union with is the one who's head over all things. He's also the one who's above all principality and power, which we'll learn more about next week. Verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then he, he is the resurrection power. He's God at work in us. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 2, verse 7. So the victory's been won. The victory's been won at the cross and resurrection. We, 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 we battle against a defeated foe, Satan, a defeated foe. So we have all this resurrection power. <clears throat> we're on Christ's side now. We're not fighting for victory, brothers and sisters, we're fighting from it. So even though we have the resurrection power, we got the power of the Holy Spirit, He indwells us, we're called to abide in Him. Paul begins to wrap the letter up with the word, finally. Finally. The ultimate finally victory, the ultimate final victory rather, is glory when we go home. But here and now, we live in this age which is known as the evil day. This evil day. In Ephesians 6.13 says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So here's the set that governs the whole scene here of our text. The days are evil, the enemy's loose. And we're called to stand against him. So the passage over the next few weeks, which is, will be verses 10 through 20, falls into three categories. Category number one is the call. The call to take up God's armor for battle, verses 10 through 13. We'll cover part of that today. Then we see the description of the armor in verses 14 to 17. And we're going to, once we get over and through the work of who the enemy is and how he operates, we're going to look at the whole armor of God and we're going to look at each piece individually. One piece per week. And then finally, we see the need to be watchful in prayer and intercession, verses 18 to 20. And we'll cover that in the next, I don't know, six, seven weeks, whatever it takes us, because we want to understand it. Amen? 
We want to know what it says and know, know what it means by what it says so that we can properly apply the whole armor of God to our lives. So here we are in verse 10. You have outlined in your bulletin. Here we are at our power source. Our power source. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, with all this that we've been granted by God's grace, we are to take absolutely nothing for granted. To take nothing for granted. As soon as you stop watching, as soon as you stop being alert and walking in the Spirit, that's when you'll be overtaken. Because there's something else here. It's an enemy that you can't see. It's an enemy that's invisible. Satan and the demons are non-corporeal. They're, 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 they're non-physical. They're spirit. Unseen forces of evil. If you want to simply define the Christian life, it would be this. All capital letters. Warfare. War. Battle. At the end of Paul's life, he said of himself, I have fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. To Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may place him who enlisted him as a soldier. So this military metaphor shows us that this is a duty of singleness of purpose. Singleness of purpose. Our soldiers in Iraq right now, in the heat of battle, when they're out watching, they're not thinking about they're not thinking about playing Xbox, okay? They're not thinking about hobbies. They are focused, they are engaged. They are not entangled with the secular culture whatsoever. They are fully and completely engaged because they know their life depends upon it. Worldly living for the Christian will cause entanglement, defeat, and more than anything else, dishonor to our Master-in-Chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a soldier of Jesus Christ is to be strong in Him, strong in His power. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Spiritually impotent, incapable to do anything of, etern of eternal value in our own strength. Totally empty. A Christian that's separated from Christ or a Christian who's attempting to live a life in his own strength and effort is like a branch that's separated from a vine. It will wither and die. All the life is in the vine. An arm has no strength in and of itself. If my arm was not attached to my body now, right now, I couldn't move it from my thigh to over my head. Incapable. If you live a life without looking to Christ, you rush into conflict without thinking of Christ, without placing your trust in Him, without continually looking to Him for strength, you're a body part that attempts to gain ability without the body's strength. This arm doesn't throw a football without being attached to the body. Attempting to live the Christian life outside of the power source himself, you're like the arm without the body, you're like the branch outside of the vine. Totally incapable. When we are weak, then we are strong. 
When we are most empty of self, we're most full of God. Called to pick up our cross, how often? Daily. Die to self daily. Moment by moment. The entirety of the Christian life is an ongoing state of repentance, as Luther said. Continually, continually repenting. Drawing near to Christ. Submitting to Him. Move, being moved when He convicts us. Reproves us. Power in His might. Power in His might means in the energy derived from His strength. And only as members of Christ's body can we have either life or power. We're incapable on our own. So this is a focus of preparation that he's talking about. He says, be strong. Or be strengthened. Paul, it's one of Paul's favorite action commands. It's in the present passive form. It means keep on being strengthened. Keep on being strengthened. A continual action for the Christian. Ongoing pursuit. That's the way of the life for the Christian. Christ has won the war. We're simply in the battle. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from it. Calvary. Calvary is where victory was won. Over sin and over death and over the power of the enemy. And we who are in Christ do not have to be subject to the power of the enemy. Swayed by him. Moved by him. To do evil. Christ has won the war. The enemy has absolutely no power to overtake you as a believer. Unless you give it to him. Unless you lend it to him. He has no power to possess you. That's an impossibility. An absolute impossibility. Christians having demons is absolutely foreign to scripture. I know you've heard a lot of that teaching. Some teachers teach that a Christian can be demon possessed. Some of them won't go as far as to say that they can be possessed, so they say you're being demonized. Demonized. I've heard teachers gather a group of Christians and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian and, and uh, I, I, I see prostitutes on a weekly basis. Oh, well, you have the demon of prostitution or you have the demon of fornication or you're a drunk so you have the demon of, of drunkenness or you have the demon of marijuana now you have the demon of nicotine. You have the demon of anger or you have the demon of rage. No such thing. Those are all manifestations of the flesh. Those are things that we as believers are to die of. Those are the things we as believers are to sever ourselves from. Because we have the power. We abide in Him and He in us. Be leery of these people who run around calling out the devil, shouting at Him, calling Him names. You know? They're binding Him up, chaining Him up, they're tossing Him out the window. You know, I've been in prayer meetings where a guy's talking to the Lord. Then he goes on this rant to the Satan. Said, Wait a minute here. Who, who are we talking to here? There's no believer who's not capable of overcoming Satan by the power of God. On the other hand, there's no believer who's capable of overcoming Satan in his own strength. You cannot handle Satan. I cannot handle Satan. So God provides. He says, look, be prepared. And when he says be prepared, he also makes provision. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to every other man. 
But with every temptation, God leaves, leaves the way of escape. We can overcome him in this power of God. If you go out and try to live a life outside of abiding in Christ, he'll devour you. He'll devour you. So God says, be prepared. Verse 11, we see the provision. Put on the whole armor of God. Which pieces? All of them, the whole, the whole armor. To put it on once and for all. So it's likely here when Paul wrote this letter that he was chained to a Roman soldier. So he, he builds this de descriptive metaphor that depicts a Roman soldier's armament. And we're going to look at each piece, as I said, over the weeks. The whole armor here is, is panoplia. Or where we, it's our word panoply. The whole thing. A full suit of armor. A full array. The whole thing. All of it. And here's the essence of the armor. The essence of the whole armor of God is this. It simply is to get your life in order to live a righteous life in Christ. To get your life in order to live a righteous life in Christ. Because this battle that we're going to look at today, many people, they, they get super sensationalistic on this whole spiritual warfare thing. You know what it's a battle of, Christian? For every believer, it's a battle for your mind, your thinking, and your emotions. Your mind and your emotions. The whole thing. And we'll see that. So here we have the, the purpose of the provision. We're not going to spend a whole long time with the whole armor because, like I said, we're going to spend great detail in it. So, he says, Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This is the purpose for the provision. So that we can stand against the devil and his wiles. Jesus' ministry began with direct opposition to Satan himself. His public ministry had begun. He, he went down. He was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And it says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting, there he was, tempting him. Jesus defeats his enemy. It's impossible for him to be defeated, being God in the flesh. Simply quoted Scripture. Scripture, the Word of God. The everlasting Word of God. And then at the end of his ministry, the ultimate fulfillment of his ministry was Jerusalem, was the cross. He sent, set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. That was the goal, the cross. And there it was the night before, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan himself. Face to face. Now, if we're in Christ, we're going to face the same enemy. You're probably not going to face Satan alone. I mean, Satan isn't going to come to you or to me. He's, got, he's dealing with nations and he's dealing with rulers of nations. He can only be in one place at one time, as we'll see. But there's demonic forces that will tempt you and tempt I, myself, to... to draw away from abiding in Christ so that we bring no glory to Christ. Opposition. The longer you walk with Christ, the harder Satan will work against you. The more you submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, the harder he will attempt to defeat you. But the longer you walk with Christ and depend on Christ, you, the longer string of victories you have behind you. So the greater confidence builds over time, you see. To, to know that you can trust in Him. 
that He is faithful, that He is true. 1 Corinthians 16.8 Paul, he says, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door of opportunity has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So here he says, look, I have a great opportunity here to preach the gospel. But not only that, there's a whole lot of opposition. So I'm going to stay. I'm going to remain. Great opportunities, great opposition. I'm staying right here for now. The greater, the greater opportunity you have to preach the gospel, you're going to see more opposition. The more you live your life sold out to Jesus Christ, the more opposition you will see. It's a guarantee. A friend of mine was just telling me he was down at Belboar Park sharing the gospel yesterday. He said, man, I felt so defeated. And he says, I was like, Lord, just throw me a bone here. Everyone's so resistant, so resistant today. I haven't had one in line here that you've placed in your providence and in your sovereignty that at least seems to be open to the gospel whatsoever. Very discouraging, right? Or to persevere. Great opportunity will always produce great opposition. It's typical of spiritual warfare. The more opportunities you have, the longer you serve Christ, the more opposition will raise this ugly head. Can't give in. Serving Christ is not tiptoeing through the tulips. You know, people, these prosperity teachers that, oh, just, you know, we're just walking around, floating around serving Jesus. You know, I'm waiting on my BMW, I'm waiting on my Mercedes. He promises, right? Health and wealth gospel. Walking with Christ is like walking through a minefield, as far as the, the battle goes, with snipers and trees that you can't see. And if you're going to do that in your own power, you're a dead duck. You're done. It's unseen. You don't see it. You don't see it. Second Corinthians 10, Mark read from this morning, verse 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but spiritual. Now, opposition may come through humans, simply as instruments, as they did Jesus. They spit on him. They mocked him. They beat him. They whipped him. They drove the nails through his hands. And they propped him up on a cross. They speared him in the side. But there was something behind it. The devil being allowed to orchestrate his little plan. But God in his sovereignty defeated the foe through that plan, you see. Couldn't see it. Of course, Jesus knew it. Disciples didn't understand it. Many things we go through we don't understand. God is sovereign. He's in absolute control of all things. He will allow certain things for the sake of honing us, maturing us, enlightening us. So it will come through human form, but the physical world is only being used by the spiritual forces of wickedness, the unseen forces of evil, as a means to their end. That's it. It's to hinder the work of God. Satan hates Jesus Christ and he uses men as his pawns. That's it. Satan simply used human beings as pawns to resist the work of God. But there's a, there's a battle that's unseen that's behind it all. Satan will seduce God's people into sin. Sin. He wants to blind their eyes. He wants to entangle them, entrap them. He wants to suggest evil and skeptical thoughts that are contrary to the truth of God that we know. 
He wants you to get, get you to doubt truth. Now, the more mature you come in Christ, the more mature and longer you walk in Christ, the temptations become much more subtle. We're called to be wise as what? Serpents. We're not called to be fools. We're called to be students. You have a whole culture that's trying to push this out. You, you came from an ape. Violating truth. That's the goal. That's the enemy's goal. But as Christians, we face three enemies. Three enemies that we face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. First you have the world. It refers to the world system. that is contrary to Christ. It's the anti-Christian mentality, the anti-Christ spirit, the anti-Christ, the anti-Christ mentality in the world that hates Christ. And the world system caters to the second enemy, which is our flesh. Caters to our flesh, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you profess Christ and you love this world system, and it's all you can do to get up and go to church on Sunday and Christ isn't in your life, evident in your life any other day of the week, you love the world. He said, I didn't, that the love of the Father is not in him. He who loves the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world's passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. First, we see lust. Lust is simply a strong desire for everything that's evil, for anything that's contrary to the commandments or the teachings or the mind of Christ. To please self. To appease self. To exalt self. Then you have the flesh, which is a term referring to that, that old sinful part of us. The sin still in us. The rebellious self-centeredness of us all that's opposed to God, opposed to Him. That's why we're called to do with our flesh what we're called to do, which is what? Kill it. Crucify it. Daily. That's why we're called to pick up our cross daily because the flesh rears its head and it screams to be appeased. It, it screams to be nurtured and rubbed and stroked. That's the flesh. And then you have the eyes. Satan uses the eyes to incite wrong desires. I mean, he used something beautiful in the sight of Eve to tempt her. Remember the fruit? Whatever kind of fruit it was, it was pleasing to the eyes. Then you have the pride of life. Circumstantial arrogance. Parading self. Parading your possessions. Parading the little image you've set up about of yourself. Walking with the chin up, looking down your nose at everybody else. That's the pride of life. And then the third enemy, the devil attempts to manipulate those first two, which is the world system and the world system which appeases the flesh and tries to draw out the flesh, the devil comes and tries to manipulate those two things. That's what we're up against. That's the battle we're all in. If you're in Christ, that's the battle you're in. If you're not in Christ, 
you're at war with God and you're deceived. It's that simple. So notice what we're warned against. What are we warned against? We're warned against his wiles. Wiles means schemes. It has the idea of clever craftiness. Cunning deception. It encompasses every sin, every immorality. And here it is. Check this out. This is the biggest. Every false theology and every false religion. Wiles of the devil means that they operate on the methods of the devil and his cunning craftiness. He will do everything within his power to keep the true gospel out of the lives of the lost and keep Christians into some form of false doctrine. Wrapped up in some false religious system, some false form of teaching, even though they wave the banner of evangelical Christian. We're called to rightly divide the word of truth. Teachers are called to rightly divide the word. word to means to cut it straight so that we're not ashamed. Teachers have been given the warning to be, beware lest many of you become teachers knowing we will receive a stricter judgment. Like I've said many times before, my job is to teach you the truth. I'll stand before God. People get mad at me because I teach the truth, but it's not my truth, it's His truth. It's His truth. So, if anything, you'll know it. Whether you leave or not, you'll know it. And the hope is that we receive it so that we can be a unified, strengthened body of soldiers for Jesus Christ to stand in op opposition to these types of wiles, tricks, and schemes. The devil deceived Israel in the Old Testament right into idol worship. They walked away from the one who delivered them, who separated the Red Sea, who sent the ten plagues. Come on, somebody. He deceived them in the New Testament to murder their own Messiah. He'll deceive them in the future to think that the Antichrist is the Christ, along with the whole world, by the way. And the Bible tells us that it will be a time that will be so deceiving under that realm of leadership and the Antichrist, when all hell will break loose on earth, that if it were possible, which is not, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived meaning true Christians who are the elect. True Christians won't be able to be deceived. That's the whole point. But that's the verbiage he uses to declare how deceiving it will be. Unseen forces of evil here. Satan. Crafty. Millions upon millions of people are deceived into believing that they, what they believe about God, although it's contrary to Scripture, is truth. And they believe that what they believe, although it's contrary to sound doctrine and to teaching, that it leads to God. When in reality, Jesus said that's the way of the broad road. The wide gate. How many go in that way? Many. Many. If you're going to live for the truth, declare the truth, know the truth, and submit yourself to the truth, you're not going to be the most popular guy on the block. You're not going to be the most popular girl at school or in your office when you submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every facet of your life. Wiles. That's why I get so ticked off and mad when I watch these freaks on the TV evangelistic shows, whatever they want to call them. It's because they, I know who's behind it. 
It's the devil. And people are being swayed and moved with false doctrine. They're being misled and deceived. And when you start seeing things like that, you begin to see everyone, every human being, every body that walks before you as an everlasting being. They're going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. That's the reality of everyone that passes by you. But Satan will twist, twist and pervert Scripture. He's got people meditating on their navels in a corner somewhere, all folded up like a pretzel, thinking that they're going to become God. He's got people in, living in America who thinks that they're God. They're deceived by elements of light through the TV and computers and movie screens that that's what they aspire to. In other parts of the world, and friends of mine who just returned from a missions trip, people are seeking spirituality, black magic, and they'll worship a rock or something, and Satan, who's behind it, will, if God allows him, will elevate the rock to get him to focus on it even more and to keep him away from truth. Wiles of the devil. Schemes of the devil. He's got kids growing up thinking because they went to Christian school and they said some prayer that they're okay. But they've never repented of their sin. They're not born again. Deception. Matthew 13, 19, Jesus said, When, every, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and, it do, and he does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that which was sown in the heart. Never takes root. So Satan attacks with wiles. He attacks in many ways. And we're just going to give you some reasons here. Or, or some ways in which he attacks. First and foremost, this is what he does. He wants to undermine the character and the credibility of God Almighty. From day one, Satan has used this approach in the Garden of Eden. Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You can't eat from any tree. In a brief moment, Satan twists the Scripture. He twists the Word of God, and then he disputes God's Word. God never forbid them to eat of any tree. He said, you can eat of any tree, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So he starts with a twist. And then he follows the twisted interpretation with a straight-up denial of God's Word. You will surely not die. Denying the command of God. So he implies, Satan, that is, implies that God's a liar. You're not going to die. That's a lie. As a matter of fact, when you do eat of it, what God knows is that when you, the day you eat of it, you will then be like Him. He's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want to hit you to have fun. So he's a liar. He knows when you eat of it, you will be like God. Same lie today, just packaged differently. Amen? Same lie. You become like God. You become God. The structure of the entire religious world system is that you can become a God. That there are many roads to God so long as you're sincere. Or you don't need to worry about coming to Christ now. Go ahead and live a little bit. Go ahead and live. Sow your wild oats and then you can come to Christ later. There's a lie from the pit of hell. No one comes to Christ on their own, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody. 
No one comes to the Son, Jesus said, lest the Father, what? Draw him. No one has the power in themselves to come to Jesus Christ. You don't go live a free will life as you so please. You want to call it that? The only freedom of will any human being has is the freedom to sin. <laughs> you don't have the freedom to come to Christ. Only He can draw you. Only He can dispense faith to believe. It's all Him. It's all Him. You're just called to respond in repentance. He's a liar. You got practicing homosexuals today. They go out and start their own churches. They have a couple husbands sitting next to each other. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. We all love the Lord. We're all one big family. Active, unrepentant homosexuality. And then they go as far as to say that King David and Jonathan, his best friend, had a homosexual relationship, so they attempt to justify their wicked behavior, their wicked lifestyle, by twisting Scripture. And now they go as far to say that Jesus and the apostles also had that type of loving relationship. Blasphemy. Repent is the word of the day. Don't be a victim of Satan's lies, brothers and sisters. Be strong in the word through systematic study. That's why we teach it like we do here. This is a pattern of how to properly study the word of God. You read it, then you study it. You know what it says, and then you know what it means by what it says, so that you can properly apply it to your life. Amen? That's the goal. Another way in which he tricks and deceives is he simply makes it hard to live the Christian life. Can I get an amen? Whew. Opposition, persecution. Persecution should never take a Christian by surprise. Ever. Jesus warned of it. Paul warned of it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, guarantee, will suffer persecution. If you don't desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you won't suffer persecution. You're undercover or you're no Christian at all, one or the other. But a lot of contemporary Christianity today teach that you ought to expect a pain-free life. Health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Jesus wants you to be rich, and He wants you to be healthy. If you're not rich and you're not healthy, you don't have enough what? Faith. That's what they teach. You just need to pray that Mercedes Benz into your garage. You're sick. You're dying. You haven't been made well of stage 4 cancer. Oh, you don't have enough faith. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Robert, you ain't got up on that wheelchair yet? What, do you lack faith? Come on, that's what they do. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Oftentimes when persecution arises, those who aren't real believers, gone. Gone. Matthew 13, verse 20. Jesus, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who received the seed, which is the word, on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I like the sound of that gospel coming to Jesus. He wants to be my friend. Oh, he wants to be my savior. Oh, terrific. Let me storm the aisle. Jesus goes on to say, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. 
For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. He's gone. He's out of there. So by peer pressure, fearing that, feeling, fearing that we might lose friends and don't like that feeling, we're afraid of being isolated. We don't profess the truth. We don't live it. Remember, God has used persecution over the time to strengthen His church. You know, the church historically has always been the strongest when there's been great persecution against it. Always been the strongest. Because of all the chaff and all of the tears, you know what they do? They disappear. And then you know who you have. You got the real deal. That's always when the church has been the strongest. So I want to encourage you to, to fight the tendency to become preoccupied with things that are unrelated to the kingdom of, co of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in this world you will suffer. Guarantee. Jesus said, blessed are, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for years of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. Might not be here, but when you get home, amen? Come on now, somebody. Another way he um, operates, the devil, he confuses the believer with false doctrine. The confusion of incorrect teaching. Well, you got Christians this tossed about like a ship without a sail. Just thrown around, beat up. If you remember in Ephesians 4, <clears throat> we're called to equip the saints, right? For the work of the ministry. In order that, chapter 4, verse 14, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. By the author of, of it all, which is Satan. The author of it all. That's why we focus on teaching like we do. So it's rooted up in you. Down deep in you. When you under, first time some Christians sin under expository teaching, verse by verse, you're reading it and then you explain it, which, you know, just to do an opening introduction takes 25 minutes. Come on now. <laughs> At first, a lot of Christians, because they've had such superficial teaching over their years, it, it's kind of hard to digest. But once you sit under it for a while, you'll never go back. You'll never go back. True Christians hunger for truth. They hunger for truth because they see that this, this is much more than outside these doors, man. It's an unseen war that's raging. It's raging and he wants to hinder you. And that's what he does next. He wants to hinder effective service for God. And we have to labor in the midst of it. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, that our labor of our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached you the gospel of God. Laboring, toil, effort. He wants to hinder effective service. You might begin a ministry. Be discouraged in it. First ministry I was ever in was children's ministry. And, and I remember thinking that, oh, I just remember this prompting from the Lord. That that's where I needed to serve. And uh, 
they, I think they gave an announcement, the church I was at from the pulpit, go sign up here. And I says, I'm definitely going to do it. It was just confirmed I'm going to do that. So I go, I go through this training every Sunday for two, three hours. After church for five weeks, you have to go through this general training. And then they put you out in this room with these kids. And I'm thinking, ah, I'm a pretty strapping guy. God's going to probably have me, you know, serving teenagers because I know what it's about. And many of you know my little story that I served for three and a half years, two and three year old kids. That was my, that was my first flock. <laughs> and I no sooner got in that room, and I was so discouraged, and I said, "This stinks." And a bunch of snot-nosed little kids running around, <laughs> greasing up my shoulder. And it wasn't but a few weeks later because I stuck it out by God's grace. Oh, I loved those kids. I loved those kids, and I loved the ministry. But we got to persevere. Opposition will set in. Will set in. Another way he operates is he wants to cause division within the body. To hinder the glory of Jesus Christ. In in Ephesians 4 verse 2, we're instructed to bear with one another with all lowliness and gentleness. With long suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we're, we're to be humble and gentle towards one another. Not allowing wedges to be pounded in between us. If you got a problem with your brother and sister, go to them. If you think someone has something against you, go to them. If they continue to have something against you, at least you've done your part. Amen? Unified. There's enough opposition on the outside. Come on. We don't need it on the inside, right? But he tries to, he's pounding on the doors of the church to cause division. That's how he operates. We have to be wise. Another way is he, <clears throat> he leads us, the devil leads us, or attempts to lead us, into trusting our own resources. You want to begin to number everything. In an illustration of this we see in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, <clears throat> Old Testament. And here we have King David, who was feeling, you know, he was pretty, feeling pretty confident in all that he'd accomplished as a warrior and as a king, greatest king of Israel. So he sends out a man, Joab, to count his troops, to count his F-18, so to speak. Right? So in chapter 21, look at this, verse 1. Notice who was behind it. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go! Number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered. Now here's Joab saying, wait a minute, big fella. Let's think about this. May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came to Jerusalem. So he goes and he numbers them all. But verse 6, he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And then verse 7, and God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. See, when you want to begin to trust in your own resources... You're going, to be, you're going to become doubtful of God. Doubtful 
of his word, and you're going to become self-dependent. The enemy wants you to become self-dependent because then you become powerless. You see? Powerless. That's a heavy one we miss. God wants us to trust Him and to be dependent upon Him according to this, what this says. And it's not how you feel. Feelings are important, but you don't want to test everything in light of your feelings. You'll be a wreck. You'll be like a roller coaster. Up and down, up and down. I love the Lord. Oh, He hates my guts. Oh, I love the Lord. He loves me. Back and forth. Up and down. Another way he attempts to dishonor God, discredit God, and to lure us is he, wants to, he, he attempts to cause us to be hypocritical. Sunday Christians, Sunday smiles, coming into church, punching the little time clock, so to speak. Hey, I showed up. Hey, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then go live like hell for six days. We're like an unbeliever. Hypocrisy. And then the world looks and it gives them reason to what? Blaspheme God. There they go again. There's your Christians for you. <clears throat> Christians show up to be seen, but not to live, not to be equipped, not to be cut, reproved, corrected, edified, built up, encouraged, exhorted, all of those things. Another, another way the enemy operates, he, he wants to infiltrate the church with tares, with tares. Matthew chapter 13. <laughs> Jesus gives a parable known as the parable of the tares. In verse 24, chapter 13, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. To the servants of the owner came and said, So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them up? So he goes on and gives this parable. Later on, his disciples come to him and they ask him the meaning of it. So Jesus tells them in verse 36. So Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and he said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the devil comes and he sows tares. Tares and wheat grow up together. You look at the field, they look the same. You can't distinguish one from the other until harvest time. One produces wheat, the other does not. They look the same. They say hallelujah the same. They say praise the Lord the same. They carry the same Bibles. They go to the same classes. But the tares are in the world, and Satan attempts to get them and in, in plant them into the church here and there. So that's another way the enemy operates. Another way he operates is he desires to make us worldly, materialistic. Not standing out, 
but blending in. And that's what's happening to the church today. The church is so consumed with wanting to impress the culture that they become like the culture. We're to be lights set apart so that when God does a divine work in a life and they seek truth within the church, they come into the doors of the church, they see a difference. They see light. And the job of the shepherd is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that you can go back into culture and be that light. God will bring them to faith. You're not. My buddy who was at Balboa Park preaching the gospel, he's not going to bring anyone to faith. He knows that. But it sure is a blessing when you get to be part of the harvest. Amen? So he planted yesterday. He watered a little bit. Whatever the case, God will bring forth the harvest if they're caught, if they're his. They'll come to faith. Do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12:2 says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, one of the great wiles of Satan, here's the one that's most deceiving. One of the great wiles, one of the great tricks of Satan is to make it easy to live the Christian life. <clears throat> to make it easy. It causes lethargy. Laziness. Non-engagement. Many times the hardest place to live the Christian life is in the easiest place. You know, I've done tons of prison ministry and I've gone in and I've ministered to guys in prisons and led ministries of, you know, level three, level four prisons and stuff. <clears throat> A couple guys came, most of them are lifers, but there's some of these guys that get paroled. This is, man, I'm going to go live for Jesus. And I go, dude, it was easy to live it in here, bud. It's much more difficult out there. Much more difficult out there. Because you have all this supposed freedom that you think you have, which will only put you into more bondage, really. That's how crafty is. An example of that is becoming a Christian in America. When you become a Christian in America, it's not a, it's not a life-threatening commitment. Other parts of the world, you want to profess Jesus Christ, you will lose your head. You'll be whipped. You'll be thrown in jail. You know, I've jokingly said that if true threatening in the United States took place on the professing church and true persecution really set in, that a lot of the seeker-sensitive churches who have, you know, parking ministries and stuff, they would no, no longer need parking ministries, somebody. Because all of the chaff, all of the tears, they'd be gone. They'd be gone. And people who want to go underground and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and they want to live it out there, it's a small remnant. It's a small remnant. Lethargy, sluggishness, laziness, sitting on the bench, inactive, never going where the battle is. They don't share their faith because they don't live it. They think as long as you say Jesus that you're a strong Christian. They can tell you what movies are out. They can tell you the batting stats of somebody from 1956. They can tell you who's in the playoffs. They can tell you names of people. They can tell you soap opera stars. They can tell you all the TV shows that are on during the week and everyone who's on the cover of People and Us. But they, you tell them to open up to Ecclesiastes. Spend their money on amusement. without thinking 
but they won't spend their money on equipping themselves, buying Christian books, taking classes, things of that nature. He works to make it super easy to live the Christian life. I mean, you can look at your own life, individually, all of us. Take a look at how much, where your money and time is spent. We all need to do that check. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend the majority of your time? That will determine how much of the battle you're in. Amen? We must continue to do an inward inspection, all of us. Every child of God is called to be a soldier. We've been given our marching orders. It's to put on the whole armor of God. You don't need to worry about casting out or cursing or cussing at the devil. You're called to stand and resist. Put on the whole armor of God. The devil is way beyond your thinking capability and my thinking capability. By the way, the theology of the demons is perfect. The knowledge of it, perfect. They know the Bible better than I ever will till I get home. We'll have perfect knowledge when we get to be with the Lord. But until that time, they know it a lot better than you do or I do. Any theologian that's ever lived, they know it. They know it well. So our enemy is not the system. It's not flesh and blood, as we'll see next week. But it's principalities and powers and demon forces that attempt to manipulate the system and your flesh. And next time we're going to spend a little more time. We've looked at some ways of how he operates. Next time we're going to look at who he is, or I should say who they are. And then we'll get into the, the whole armor. But I want to close with a reading from one of my favorite Puritan preachers, Richard Baxter, lived in the 1700s. And there was a large gathering of, of pastors, and he was unable to make the gathering, so he wrote letters of instruction, of encouragement, of warning. And so the context here is of warning. It's a warning against the devil and how he operates. And this is what he said. Take heed to yourselves, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are, and a more nimble disputant. He can transform himself into an angel of light in order to deceive you. He will get within you and trip you up, trip your heels up before you know it. He will cheat you of your faith or your innocence before you are aware of it. He will make you believe it is multiplied or increased even after it's gone. You shall see neither hood nor line, much less the subtle angler himself, while he is offering you his bait. And his bait shall be so fitted to your temper and disposition that he will be sure to find advantages within you and thus make your own, your own principles and inclinations betray you. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. Oh, what a conquest it is when he makes a minister lazy and unfaithful, or if he draws him into some scandalous sin. He then glories against the church, saying, Are these your holy preachers? You see what their preciseness has come to? He even glories against Jesus Christ, saying, Are these your champions? He's the accuser. He's the liar. He's the murderer, and he's been a murderer from the beginning. You know, he'll continue to do his vile work against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but he's a defeated foe. He is the prince of the air. 
He's done. It's over. So, because the war's been won, brothers and sisters, let's make sure we win the battle every day. Being mindful of the truth in light of all of the lies, adhere to the truth, put on the whole armor of God, which we'll learn. So I want to encourage you this week, be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Go over it. Go over it. Write notes. Go over it again and again and again. Pray that you'll understand all of the strength and all of the promises that He's provided for you and promised you. We've been blessed with which blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to stand in opposition to the enemy of our souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we don't have to do it ourselves. We thank You that You've called us. We thank You that You've redeemed us. We thank You that You've saved us. We thank You that You've equipped us. We thank You that You've won the battle. You've won the war. So help us on a daily manner to resist the temptations that come our way. To know that there's no temptation overtaken us except such as common to every other man. But with every temptation, you always leave the way of escape. And may we be mindful of Scripture in those weak moments. May we be mindful of Scripture when we hear false teachings through the TV or through wherever else we might hear it. And may we stand on the truth. May we, may we be quick to test all things in light of Scripture. To hold fast to the truth so that we would rightly reflect You and honor You and edify one another in You, so that we'll be a church, Lord, that magnifies Your name, so that we can have an effective impact on a world that is lost, that dwell in darkness. Just as You mercifully have brought us out, help us to be instruments of the good news as You lead others out of darkness and into the light, Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone today who perhaps realizes that they really don't know You, that You would do a work in them that would soften them to realize that they were a sinner, no matter how good they think they are, to repent before You and submit their very lives to You, that You'd hold them up, empower them, and enlighten them to see that truth and that reality, always for Your glory. Praise You, in Jesus' name, Amen. And also, friend Robert, you have surgery this week. Pray for our brother Robert who uh, has been in this wheelchair now for, I don't know, 14, 15 months. And uh, he's up and took some steps here. He actually took some steps last couple weeks. So uh, keep him in your prayers. Think about him. Pray for him. And uh, we'll close with a prayer for you right now. Father God, I want to thank you for, Russ, uh, for Robert. I want to thank you for his wife. I want to thank you for the grace that you've bestowed upon them, Lord, in this difficult time. And how easy it is to give up on a marriage. How easy it is to throw in the towel when trials like this beset us. But I pray, Lord, in the midst of the trial, that the strength that You provide, that they would cling to it. And Lord, may Your hand be upon them. May You give the doctors wisdom and discernment as they do their work. And we pray, Lord, that He will be on His feet literally walking and bringing glory to You. That Your will would be done in us through His life. And that uh, we, Lord, would be supporters of Him and of one another. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Everyone, please stand.